Wasn't it great to wake up to the sound of the rain this morning? I actually felt like going outside and singing, but then I didn't want to frighten the birds away. But have you noticed that songs are often born out of the surrounding circumstances or the environment in which the composers find themselves? Those circumstances so affect the thinking of the composer that they can't resist bursting forth with the lyrics and an accompanying melody describing their state of mind, whether it be expressing joy or sorrow or simply relating an event in their lives. Think about the old uh, Negro, Negro spirituals that grew out of slavery in America. Think about the jazz of New Orleans. Think about romantic love songs of any era. I once heard Neil Diamond say that you can tell whether a composer is uh, facing divorce or being remarried just by the words of the song that they've just recently composed. I thought that was a fairly sad reflection. Think about uh, the Wesleyan hymns, many of whom, of which were new words set to popular pub songs of the era. Think about hymns like Amazing Grace. Think about some of the modern songs, and this one probably isn't quite so modern these days, but Majesty that Jack Hayford wrote. The words came to him as he uh, drove away from Blenheim Castle in the UK. He was just so overwhelmed with the presence of God that he penned that song. Even more recently, Hands of Grace, that was written by Jeff Bullock. And that came out of a very traumatic life experience in his life. Think about many of the songs composed and sung by the late Slim Dusty or those of John Williamson. In fact, if you listen to the songs composed or songs which belong to that double genre of country and western, most tell of some circumstance or circumstances which have affected the composer or the singer. It's said of country and western that if you play the songs backwards, then your dog comes back to life, your wife comes home, and the pub does have beer. And before the purists of that little joke get upset, I did modify it a little. Much classical music also comes out of the life experiences of the composer. The book of Psalms is the oldest hymnal known to mankind. This ancient book of songs contains some of the most beautiful, the most moving and meaningful expressions of the human heart 
And Psalm 5 is certainly no exception to that rule. Let's read it. Please turn, if you have your Bibles with you, to Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sayings. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield. It's not very difficult to detect, is it, that that psalm emerged out of an atmosphere of strife and oppression, perhaps even depression. It's fairly easy to realise that David is down in the dumps, discouraged, ground down. But whatever his pressures were, they prompted David to write a song in a minor key. Many people can relate to David. I meet many people, and I'm sure you do too, who are living out their lives in the minor key of discouragement. Since Christmas, my work with John Hossack Funerals, I've had to transfer the bodies of three people that have committed suicide. Their discouragement got too much for them. So many people... Sorry, the dictionary defines discouragement as being deprived of courage, disheartened. So many people are living life without the courage, without the heart to face the demands of living in this world at this time. There is the grinding discouragement that follows an unachieved goal or a failed romance. Some people are discouraged over their marriage which began with such promise but now seems hopeless. Some people are discouraged by the pressures and the circumstances of their workplace. Often teenagers are discouraged because they can't make it with the in crowd. Many people are discouraged because of the effects of the drought. Lingering ill health 
can dis discourage and de demoralise its victims, especially when the pain won't go away. I reckon being a member of the Barmy, Barmy Army would be discouraging. <laughs> and who of us can't identify with people who give it their best shot yet have to take it on the chin from self-appointed critics? The potential for discouragement brought on by several back-to-back -back criticisms can't be exaggerated. And I would believe that it was this way for David. He was just picking himself up off the mat when another sharp-worded comment knocked him back to his knees and hence the birth of Psalm 5. Many a discouraged soul has identified with this song down over the centuries. It's interesting to note that the words just above the first verse, the superscription, as I believe it's called, sets forth the historical backdrop of this song. If you glance just above verse 1 in the King James Version of the Bible, you will see that David desired this song to be played upon Neolith, now, a neoloth was an ancient woodwind instrument, something like today's flute or oboe. Most of today's translations opt for the flute, but just to keep my body and soul intact, I'm putting my money on the oboe. And this really has nothing to do with the fact that there are two flautists here this morning who are closely related to me. Seriously, folks, an oboe is a double-reeded instrument which gives a sad-sounding whine as it's being played, especially in the hands of a learner. <laughs> the penetrating tone of an oboe causes it to be used frequently as a solo instrument. And if ever I needed a, an instrument to accompany a sad song, the oboe would be my choice. It's also interesting to note that David didn't play the Neoloth, but rather, as we all know, he was a harpist. And I don't think you can play sad songs on the harp. The harp is for beautiful, peaceful, calming music. So David wrote this sad song of discouragement for someone else to play, not himself. Perhaps the surrounding circumstances were too painful and overwhelming for him to participate in the playing of this piece. It could be rendered better by one who was skilled on the Neoloth. The sad tone of that instrument would enhance the feeling of discouragement which gave birth to this song. So as I said, folks, my money's on the oboe. But let's look at Psalm 5. And I hope you've kept your Bibles open. This psalm, like many others, 
has an organised layout. It begins with a plea and it ends with a promise. Sandwiched between the plea and the promise are four descriptions. What the Lord is like, what the psalmist is like, what the enemies are like and what the righteous are like. Take a look at David's introductory plea. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. There are three things to notice about this plea. Firstly, it was a morning prayer. Twice in verse 3, David mentions that it was in the morning that he met with his Lord. Secondly, it was, becoming, it was coming from one who was becoming increasingly more discouraged. Look at the first two verses and notice how they grow in intensity. Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Listen to my cry. As the lines progress, the thoughts, though similar, increase in intensity. And if this song were being, or the music to accompany this song were being played by an orchestra, there would be, perhaps be a crescendo sign appearing in the score. So to enter into the depth of this hymn, you can't afford to miss the growing discouragement in the writer's heart. Let yourself imagine his inner groaning. Picture the misery as you men mentally relive his situation. And the third and perhaps the most important thing to notice in the psalmist's plea is that he anticipated God's intervention. By faith he counted on it. Two statements in verse 3 reveal this. I will lay my request before you and I will wait in expectation. The Hebrew verb translated requests means to make an order. The statement could read, in the morning I will make my order to you. It's almost as if the composer had a menu in his hands. David looked upon the morning as the time to place his order with the Lord. He then said, I will wait in expectation. After placing his order, he eagerly anticipated an answer from his Lord. David refused to stumble about with his shoulders drooping, carrying his burdens throughout the day. On the contrary, he took his needs to the Lord each morning. And when we think about placing an order, remember one thing that is essential. We have to be specific. You know, you wouldn't get much of a meal if you're in a restaurant and you said, oh, I think I might have one of those or one of those, perhaps a couple of those. The waiter wouldn't know what to bring you. So you've got to be specific. So are you 
specific when you place your morning order. If there's one thing that plagues our prayer meetings and personal prayers, it's vagueness. And I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else. Could it be that our generalities keep us from receiving direct and specific answers? So after David placed a specific order each morning, he anticipated answers. He expected God to fill his order and look forward to that throughout the day. So when our outlook is dim in the morning, when discouragement worms its way in, a good remedy is to focus our attention upward. Have a friend who has a saying, look up and live. Simple words, but I reckon they make a difference. After his plea, David begins to think through the day that's in front of him and especially of those whom he would encounter. And frequently, the morning times are mentioned in scripture as being especially meaningful to our spiritual lives. There are several references in the Psalms, in Lamentations, and of course those reference to Jesus in Mark 1.35 and Luke 4.42. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So if Jesus had to do it, how much more important is it for us? In verses 4 to 6 of the psalm, David meditates on the Lord himself. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. So he mentions seven things about his Lord. He takes no pleasure in wickedness. No evil will stay with him. Arrogant boasters will not stand before him. He hates those who do wrong. He destroys those who tell lies. He abhors murderers and deceivers. Why does David review these things? Because it is a therapy to review the magnificent things of God. Many of our pent-up angry feelings and frustrations are diffused as we spell out God's abilities. Focusing on his character helps dispel discouragement. And furthermore, we are reminded that our enemies are really God's enemies and he's far more capable of dealing with them than we ever will be. Then David goes on to describe himself. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make straight your way before me. In contrast to those whom the Lord would destroy 
David enjoyed a spiritual position which is mentioned in the latter part of verse 7 as your holy temple. And this is a poetic reference to his intimate fellowship with his Lord. Verse 8 is the major prayer of of this song. Everything that's gone before is really preliminary stuff. Here is the nutshell of David's request. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. So what does that mean? Simply this, that David didn't want to resort to the tactics of his enemies. So he prayed that the Lord would lead him his way throughout the conflict. He wanted God's righteous way first and foremost. And not too many years later, the prophet Isaiah wrote similar words. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my way, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So David wanted to do things the Lord's way, not his way. Then he described his enemies. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. In his mind, David deliberately hands his enemies over to God, who, as I said before, could handle them without a problem. He also asks God to let their intrigues be their downfall. And a very significant lesson to learn when dealing with those who oppose us or with our enemies is to realise that they are fighting God, not us. And therefore he is to be relied upon for our defence. Furthermore, if left to their own devices, they will fall by themselves. Do we need the reminder from Romans 12 where Paul says it straight, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So the daily grind of discouragement is lessened when we focus on the Lord's fighting our battles for us. And finally, David describes the righteous. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. The key thought in this verse is obvious. 
It is joy. So what does your countenance show right now? Is it joyful? Do you really love, live and perhaps love above the pressures? Is there evidence of peace written across your face? The biggest danger of trying to fight our own battles is that we can become bitter, severe, cranky and our faces will show the marks of the battle. Have you ever taken note of Cain's response to God's refusal of his offering? Most significant statement appears in Genesis 4-5. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Another way of translating the Hebrew text adds a bit more colour. And Cain burned with anger and his face fell. When we harbour anger and resentment, our faces show it. Our lips droop, our eyes become sad. It's impossible to hide in a discouragement. Fallen faces are telltale signs of discouraged hearts. David wanted God to take his inner burden and replace it with inner joy. Finally, the psalmist mentions in the final verse a promise that we frequently forget. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with favour as with a shield. David closes his song occupied with the Lord, having given him his morning burden. His discouragement has fled away and the shield that he mentions at the end of this song was the largest of the warrior's shields, one that covered the entire body. So what is the promise? The promise is that God will bless and protect those who look to him for protection. How? He will do this by giving them favour and providing them with his large, protective, yet invisible shield. So you can put your shield up and get rid of discouragement. That all sounds fairly simple, doesn't it? Now maybe the cause of your discouragement, your loss of courage, is different to David's. Maybe your enemies aren't other humans. Maybe they're things within that you've allowed to get to you. But whatever the cause, the principles remain the same in order to become encouraged, which is to have courage to be inspired with spirit or hope, to be emboldened. Share your burden with God in the morning and do that with an expectation that God will give you an answer. Remember that you are 
in a privileged place, a place of intimate fellowship with your Lord. And remember that David was writing before Christ came. Most of the time to go to God, he had to go through a priest. We don't have to do that. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, seated at God's right hand, is our direct line to the Almighty. So we are in a privileged place, perhaps even more privileged than David was. Then hand over your enemies to God and don't make the mistake of taking them back. Let God fill your heart with his peace and joy. And let God shield and protect you. Now this doesn't mean that we will live trouble-free lives. That's not God's promise. Even though he will shield and protect us, as we live our lives there will be things that will come along that will buffer us and upset us, but God will give us the way through. He will make a way, as another song says. So finally, be encouraged by those words from Isaiah 40, which seem to have become the theme song for this series. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And that's a whole other sermon, but I'm not sharing that with you today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are our strength and our shield. There is no problem, no circumstance, nothing that we can face that is too large for you. Lord, as we meditate and think about those words that David wrote, let us remember that it was to you he turned. He didn't try to fix it himself, but left it to you. And he was able to write that you gave him joy and peace. So Lord, as we move from this place into the world, whatever we face. Remind us constantly by your spirit that we face it with you and not on our own. Encourage us, strengthen us, enliven us by your Holy Spirit. For we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.